0: Welcome
1: to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Well, welcome, everybody. We're so glad to have you here tonight for the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, For those listening to the podcast, this event is taped for podcast in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the campus of the University of Washington. Go Huskies. Uh, Each month, Reverend Earl Palmer selects a book every thinking Christian ought to have read. Tonight, our subject is The Man Born to be King, written by Dorothy Sayers for the BBC. It's a radio drama based on the life of Jesus, produced and broadcast by the BBC during the Second World War. And here to give us his overview of the importance and significance of The Man Born to be King is Reverend Earl Palmer. Join me in welcoming Earl. Uh, well, I don't have to tell you that World War
0: II began in 1939 and, uh, and then quickly went into, ni- into the year 1940 when Germany sing- simply swept all of Western Europe. In fact, it was Dorothy Sayers who had one of the uh, sort of her inimitable way of describing what happened uh, in the 1940s that led, of course, to the uh, the the Great Battle of Britain in World War II. She, he, she said, "This Hitler scooped up Norway, swallowed Denmark alive, bombed and blazed his way across Holland, battered Belgium to a mummy, tossed the British army into the sea. That's Dunkirk, by the way. But there was a, a miraculous uh, um, uh, escape from Dunkirk. But that was the miracle of Dunkirk. But they, all these troops were thrown to the thrown to the sea. Uh, so anyway." Uh, Tossed the British Army into the sea, blew France to fragments, and the world stood still. And Britain was stripped naked in the arena to await the pounce of the beast. And that is the way she described it in 1940. Actually, she wrote that soon after Churchill became the Prime Minister in May of 1940. And then, of course, uh, the Battle of Britain was underway in the late 1940s, and in especially in 1941, 42, and all the way to 44, and it was it very much felt, the intensity it was felt with the bombing raids, uh, in constant bombing raids of London. And so Dorothy Sayers was invited, as was C.S. Lewis. Tonight, we're not talking about Lewis. The, the British Broadcasting Company, trying to keep the, the morale of the people up, uh, in invited two British authors uh, to uh, play a role uh, to encourage the British people. And one was C.S. Lewis. And he gave, starting in August of 1941, he gave some 29 broadcast talks. And they were, uh, uh, they later became the book Mere Christianity. But those broadcast talks, were invited by BBC to to have Lewis speak to England during that time. And then in December of 1941, uh, BBC came to Dorothy Sayers, the famous novelist who everybody knew because of Peter Whimsey and everybody knew because of of her plays on on the London stage and and her her fame as uh, a scholar, but also mainly a mystery writer. She wrote 15 mysteries that were very, very popular in England. And sh- they, were, uh, they invited her to present an epic sort of radio broadcast... that would be done by actors. They were, their idea was to have 43 actors... which they ended up with 43 actors... that would do it in, in sequence, month by month by month. And what happened was that these, uh, this uh, presentation, this radio broadcast... Uh, or, or a radio play would be performed from December to and it was from December of 1941 which is probably the darkest hour of the Battle of Britain United States was not in the war no one uh, wondered if America would get in the war otherwise Britain felt they were there they were like she says they're stripped naked uh, with waiting for the pounce of the beast and so is a dark hour and uh th- this play was performed from 1941 december to october of 1942 and she then wrote this script she they invited her to write the script it's, it's interesting james Welsh, the same director of uh, broadcast at bbc who invited c.s lewis to give the broadcast talks then turned right around and went to dorothy sayers for some drama now Originally, the idea was that Dorothy Sayers would write uh, this drama for the children's hour. See, Lewis was going to be the adult hour uh, during uh, uh, BBC's uh, attempt to encourage uh, Britain during the Battle of Britain. And uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers, they felt this novelist, would write. And she said she'd like to write the story of the life of Christ. She'd like to write a presentation of the life of Christ. And so they said, That's that's wonderful, let's put it in the children's hour. And then, of course, unfortunately, though, uh, the, this lady whose name was Jenkins, who was in charge of the children's hour, taking it a little bit out of the hands of James Welsh, who was the head of all the adult programming at BBC, she uh, then said, Oh, Miss uh, Dorothy Sayers, we're so grateful that you're going to do this. And of course, w- uh, she be- read the first script, the first. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, you might say introductory script of how it would start. And the, she said, yes, it's just wonderful and you're doing such wonderful stuff. Of course, we'll edit it down to make it child appropriate. And and, and they said, that, that, of course, you understand, we have to do that. They already, you know, Lewis, Lewis's speeches had to be checked by the censor to make sure you didn't give away government secrets. But <laughs> they, they they said, we'll try to make the language a little more appropriate for children. Whereupon, now this gives you an insight into the personality of Dorothy Sayers. She took the contract the BBC had written to her, and, and she tore it up into little tiny pieces and put it in an envelope and sent it back to BBC. <laughs> she said, uh, I am not writing for the children's hour. And I, well, no, she originally agreed to do it, but she said, I'm not letting anybody edit my material." She's like J.R. Tolkien. No one touched Tolkien's stuff. No one touches my writing. Uh, And if you don't like what I write, then I... So then she tore it all up and tied and sent it back as a letter to BBC. Well, fortunately, the letter that the crumbled letter went to uh, James Welsh, and James Welsh says, No, no, we don't want to lose Dorothy Sayre. So he fired Miss Jenkins. And in effect, he said, no, we'll do other things for Children's Hour, and uh, we'll, we'll do a lot of things for Children's Hour, but we're going to move Miss Sayers into adult programming. So whew, that was a great relief. And, uh, and then he did a brilliant thing. He chose as the director for her play a very famous man in England, Val Gilded. That would be the brother of Sir John Gilgud. Sir John Gielgud is probably the most famous actor in all of England. and uh, But his brother, also famous as a director, was Val Gilgud. And the interesting thing is that Val Gilgud was not particularly Christian. He wasn't interested in Christian things. But it had a transforming effect on his own life. And that's in the book that was written about uh, the, the putting on this play. On the effect it had on Gilgit, and as a matter of fact dorothy sayers dedicates the book to john Gilgit, uh, to uh, val Gilgit. she fell in love with that man's uh, directing skill and his uh, his w- willingness to do this play so that became the winning combination dorothy sayers who's a snoopy kind of person nobody touches anything she writes but she and, and she makes herself a little too omnipresent when they're doing rehearsals, making helpful suggestions to the actors, which some directors just despise. But Val Gogan got a kick out of it because he could talk back to her and she accepted everything he said when he talked back. But on the other hand, he kind of liked the, the suggestions she made. So anyway, they did the play. And tonight what I want to do is, without further ado, I could tell you a lot about Dorothy Sayers because she's the most priceless person to talk about. But I want to now tell you about her play, as if you were in London going to hear it for the first time. Now, I will give you one little disclaimer at the beginning. When When the script was first surfaced, the BBC thought that they ought to let major denominations and major religious groups know that this was coming down the pike. And so they they sent it to the bishop, the Roman Catholic bishop, to the Greek Orthodox, and to uh, the Presbyterians up in Scotland, and all all the denominations, and some free church people as well, just to see, what do you think of this script? The Presbyterian church, my denomination, said it was blasphemous. It was a blasphemous script, and they said it should not be performed. And they were the only ones who said no, was the Presbyterian church of Scotland. And that was a major blow. But Dorothy Sayers would not budge. And she said, well, you know, and she was Anglican herself. But she said, no, it's going to go. It goes the way I've written it or it isn't going to go. And so the BBC relented, even with the Presbyterian church saying, we'll probably boycott it. And I will say this, Presbyterians have a hard time learning, but we do learn because about two months later, we repented and the presbyterian church of scotland <laughs> repented for the fact that this script is magical and finally the minute the people began to hear it they they realized how magical it was so with that i will uh, imagine you're listening to it knowing that there's controversy out there some people if you're a presbyterian in scotland you know that there's controversy and if if you know uh, you read the, the times of london you know there's controversy about this play because some people think it's very very Uh, Reckless, And and Dorothy Sayers has done very reckless things in the way she is interpreting the life of Christ and the way she puts her characters together. It is written by a novelist now. Remember, this is an interpretation of the life of Christ by a novelist, uh, a detective story writer at that. And that is Dorothy L. Sayers. All right. It starts out right away. And what we're going to do is some soundings. I'm going to take you on some soundings through the play. And I'm going to actually read the, read the parts of the play that I'm going to do soundings on. And then I want to make theological reflections on what I think is, uh, what, I, what I personally think are some of the brilliant uh, breakthroughs that come from this novelist in helping us understand the Christian faith. And helping us understand its, signi- its significance to life. Well, right away, we'll start with the wise men, because they are at the beginning of the story. And you say, if you're going to blow it anywhere and ruin it, you'll ruin it with the three wise men with their uh, gifts and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, and yet Dorothy Sayers is just marvelous. The, uh, so is in page 72, if you're taking notes and want to keep track in page 72, we have this great scene where uh, the three wise men who she names and she knows more about them than they than history knows because she's a novelist. And uh, anyway, give her credit for that. And the, but the three wise men, uh, we know they're from the east, is all the Bible says. They're from the east. Maybe Nebateans. Who knows where they're from? But from the east. And they appear, and they say to, uh, they start to ask in in, in Jerusalem, uh, where is the the young man born to be king? We understand. We've seen a star. They're stargazers, and they've seen a star. And there's. And they are sure that uh, the stars are giving them signal that there's a birth of a king about to happen.
1: By the way, let me mention: if you jot down the page number, it's different in different editions. Oh, well, this so is it's in scene one.
0: Okay, scene one. All yeah. right, it is in scene one. And uh, the uh, we have this wonderful scene where Herod uh, brings the wise men. This is all from the Bible. This actually happens. That Herod uh, brings them t- uh, to. Uh, him And uh, he kind of feigns interest, and he doesn't want to offend these wise men. And he, they're, they're called kings. They're kings. And so he uh, brings them together and then quizzes them. Herod uh, says, uh, uh, what sort of man is this who's to be born the king of the Jews? Because that's what they said. And Melchior says, prouder than Caesar, more humble than his slave. His kingdom shall stretch from the sun setting to the sun's rising higher than the heavens, deeper than the grave and narrow as the human heart. Wow. Then Casper. He shall offer sacrifice in Jerusalem and have his temples in Rome and in Byzantium. And he himself shall be both sacrifice and priest. And there you get the hint of of what would be the Eastern and the Western Church, Rome and Constantinople are put into her play. Herod, then, you speak mysteries. Tell me this: Will he be a warrior king? Balcazar, the greatest of warriors, yet he shall be called the Prince of Peace. He will be a victor and victim in all his wars, and he will wake will make his triumph in defeat. And when wars are over, he will rule his people in love. And then Herod speaks. You cannot rule men by love. When you find your king, tell him so. Only three things will govern a people. Uh, Folks, think of this fear, greed and the promise of security. Have those three things changed in our own history today, in the in the in the in the modern world. Only three things will govern a people: fear, greed, and the promise of security. Do I not know it? Have I not loved? I have been a stern ruler, dreaded and hated. Yet my country is prosperous, that was true, and her borders at peace. But whatever, but whenever I loved, Remember, he did marry Miriam, the daughter of the Hasmonean house. And then when he felt that, that her two sons could be possible pretenders to his kingship, he murdered his own two sons. Herod did that. Everybody knew that. That's why the massacre of the innocents was understandable. He killed his own sons when he thought they might be uh, under his conniving wife. It might be a rival to him. So he says, have I not loved? I found treachery when I loved." Wow. But whenever I loved, I found treachery. Wife, children, brother, all of them. That's why he had to kill them all. He even killed his brother. All of them, all of them. Love is a traitor. It has betrayed me. It betrays all kings. It will betray your Christ. Give him that message from Herod, king of Jewry. Now, that is, that is an opening uh, to the, the man born to be king. I don't know if that makes you want to listen on in the radio broadcast or not, but that's the opening scene in man born to be king. We meet Herod, and we, meet, uh, we, we have a few more scenes with Herod, but we have that incredible, insightful scene by Dorothy Sayers. And imagine her insight into Western political history at that time or the history of the world. Only three things he, she says, and tyrants uh, rule with three things: fear, greed, and the promise of security. All right, so that's there. There's our first marker. Now let's take a look at characters we meet in the in the text. We meet Matthew, and I want to take uh, this uh, do a, a small reading from Matthew because this was part of the controversial part of her script. She decided to have Matthew speak Cockney English. <laughs> and people who were doing plays and stuff on the stage in London were outraged that she would use Cockney English for a biblical character. After all, he writes the book of Matthew. And listen to Matthew, we're going to meet him and I'll let you read it. Because this is Dorothy Sayers' portrayal of Matthew. And guess what his profession was? Tax collector. Remember, we know that from the Bible. He writes the book of Matthew. That's a good, wonderful. He reformed, obviously, and did a good job there. But he's a tax collector. And we know that from the Bible. So now Dorothy Sayers has a field day with Matthew. Well, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. Uh, but I did lose my...
1: It is something. We oh, need the yellow sheet. Oh,
0: I need my yellow sheet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that I need, because that, that's my script. Uh, so anyway, now, uh, Matthew speaks. Ah, makes you feel bad, he does sometimes, laughs and talks and eats with you, and all the time you know you're not fit to touch him. I shan't forget my first sight of him, uh, uh, neither, and you don't know me, mister. I'll tell you, I was a tax collector, a gatherer. You know what to think about that. I can see it in your face. One of the dirty dogs that works for the government and makes his profit out of selling his countrymen. That's so, and you're dead right. Well, see here, when I came down the street the other day, I don't mind telling you I had a pretty good morning. Patting myself on the back, I was thinking how I managed to put the screw on some of those poor devils of farmers and salt away a tidy bit for a rainy day. Matthew, I said to myself, you're getting warm, man. And I looked up and there he was. Hello. I thought, here's the prophet. I suppose he'll start calling me names like the rest of them. Let him hard words break no bones. So I stared at him and he stared at me. Seems as though his eyes were going straight through me and through my ledgers and reading all the bits as wasn't for publication. And somehow or other, he made me feel dirty. That's all, just dirty. I started shuffling my feet. He smiled. You know the way he smiles sometimes all of a sudden? And he says, follow me. I shouldn't. I couldn't believe my ears. I tumbled out of my desk. Away, I went up the street. I went after him. I could hear people laughing and some people spit at me, but I didn't seem to care. That's the opening of Matthew in The Man Born to be King. And the, some people said, well, now you're going too far Dorothy Sayers." But she puts she decides that she's going to have the one character, just a cockney English character, just like you'd see on the street. And, it's really, and then he goes to his banquet, and that's a hilarious story too. About and the people didn't the, the Pharisees and other people looked down on Jesus going to the banquet with him. Remember, he's a, tech, a tax collector sinner.
1: In okay. the notes to the to the director, she describes Matthew as a contemptible little quizzling official.
0: Yeah. It, it, yeah. It oh, by very, the,
1: very demeaning.
0: Yeah. By the way, that's another good thing. I'll give you one insight into that next, because in every one of the great chapters, she has notes of her own description for the actors of what she feels that actor, uh, the the part that actor should be playing, and so she does explain. Now, the next character I want us to look at is Judas, because Judas gets probably the most attention through Man Born to Be King among the disciples. He is a very complex, complicated character, and Dorothy Sayers, I think, does a remarkable job in helping us to understand this complex man, Judas Iscariot. And it's interesting when we first meet him, uh, and and uh, also the way she describes the uh, way she describes him, and when we first meet him. The first meeting with him is he meets a man named Barak. Okay, Barak is going to play. He's a fictional character that Dorothy Sayers creates. But he is a zealot, a political zealot. And Barak is going to be sort of the uh, alter ego to, uh, to Judas all the way through. And he's going to appear all the way through in man born to be king is this man Barak, who is a, a, a zealot in the zealot party. And that makes us feel, and many scholars feel, that Judas was himself involved in the zealot movement. That's a highly politicized movement that c- cared about the freedom of, of, the, of winning the freedom of Israel away from the Romans and stuff. And so uh, Judas then is in, in immediately, when we first meet him, Barak says, I belong to the party who wants to free Israel. Is that plain enough? Because Judas is meeting him for the first time. And Judas says, yes. Dot dot dot, come and see me privately. My name is Judas. Judas Iscariot. Barak says Judas Iscariot. I shall remember. And then uh, that is the opening uh, when you first meet uh, when you first meet them. Then uh, a little later we get more insight when Dorothy Sayers herself uh, uh, g- uh, gives her own in the notes. This is the notes explaining Barak and explaining uh, Judas. Listen to her insights into Judas. Barak the Zealot, he's pure politician. His speeches may uh, have topical appeal. Barak sees Jesus. By the way, this is the only place in the whole play where she mentions the Nazi Party in Germany. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Yet yeah, you heard what she thought about the Nazis, in which he talked about swallowing up uh, Denmark and everything. She says, he has topical appeal. Barak sees Jesus as the Nazi party may have seen Hitler, the heaven-sent spellbinder. See, this is after he's had a very popular moment, like the feeding of the 5,000, and great crowds came to him, and Judas was quite impressed by that, the great crowds. Also, on Palm Sunday, he's greatly impressed when they say Hosanna. And later, Barak will say, don't worry about that. That's good that they're saying about it. Now, that means that he has a lot of pride, and we can play on that pride he has because we'll flatter him. And then when we can flatter him with that pride, then we'll be able to control him. So it's interesting. Dorothy Sayers, way back in 1941, is saying this. Barack sees Jesus as the Nazi party may have seen Hitler, the heaven-sent spellbinder, rather mad, but a valuable political tool in the right hands. How many people say we've got a kind of a, a, a politician who's very, very uh, maybe uh, a loose cannon, but we can control him. And that's what the and, you know, Dorothy Sears was right. A great number of people that decided to go along with Hitler Felt so we can rein him in, and we can control him for toward our ends, the political ends we have, and this is a very key in understanding Judas, because that's going to be Dorothy Sayers' main take on Judas. Now here she's describing Judas in this play. At, Judas in this play at least defines himself. He has got the right idea. He holds it with passion and sincerity, but his intellectual pride his jealousy, and a a fundamental lack of generosity make him ready ground for the sowing seeds of suspicion. He can trust nobody but himself. He has grasped in the abstract the idea of suffering, the idea of Christ's love. And does Jesus really understand what it means? He proclaims that Jesus is incorruptible. But suppose Barak is right, because Barak says, he looks incorruptible, but unless we can bring him under control, that corruption can, uh, the, the, uh, will, will uh, rear its head. That he's, he maybe is corruptible. And uh, suppose Barak is right after all. And then Judas has this one line that he says, if, he do, if, he, if that rears it, said, I would kill him with my own hands. If he would let down my idea of him, that is the key speech Dorothy Sayers says for Judas, and that uh, he, in other words, Judas, throughout the, the play has so aligned himself with Barak and so aligned himself with the this zealot, this zealotry, this you might say this political adventurism of of uh, Barak, that 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 poisons uh, Judas' uh, ability to to really understand who Christ is and brings him finally in the play, as you know, in the New Testament. He goes to the high priest and, and, and makes an, an arrangement that he would uh, let them know who Jesus was and would point to him and, and there would be the kiss and temple guards could then arrest Jesus. And there's all kinds of interpretive models as to w- w- why Judas did this maybe to uh, force the hand of Christ because he knows that Christ has this amazing power. He saw it in the feeding of the 5,000. He saw it on Hos- on uh, the Palm Sunday when the great crowds loved him. He saw that Jesus Christ has the ability to uh, uh, bring hope and bring uh, health and had that power. And so, but then uh, uh, he, can't be, he can't bring him under control. And... He then uh, makes the, the bargain. But in the end, there is the great lament of Judas. And the lament of Judas is very, it's very, uh, it's very heartbreaking. Uh, he, af- after the Christ has been arrested, he goes back to Caiaphas and and Pilate, uh, Judas goes and says to Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas says to him, you've come of your own accord and with the highest motives, I'm sure, I came that was the reason I, I, I surrendered him to you. I did it with the highest motives. I'm trying to uh, get him to do what he's supposed to do. Uh, and and, he says, and then Judas says, I came because I hated him. The man who hates his brother is a murderer. I have murdered the Christ of God for hate. It, it was written that he must suffer, yes. And why? Because there are too many men in the world like me. Because see, now he is seeing Christ being flogged and Christ being punished, be, this is before the crucifixion. And so he comes up to and tries to give the money back, give the, the, the silver back and so that he can uh, withdraw his, uh, his witness, his false witness. And he said, because I could not endure his innocence. He was greater than I, and I hated him. And now I hate myself. Do you know what hellfire is? It's the light of God's unbearable innocence that scars and shrivels you like flame. It shows you what you are. And then uh, Caiaphas says to him, well, what is all of that to us? Your conscience is your affair. And that's the end of his encounter with Caiaphas and with the high priest. So uh, Dorothy Sayers has this amazing tr- uh, treatment of Judas. And uh, early on, we began to see these signs of uh, his own personal uh, uh, his own personal uh, uh, desire for power, and for, uh, which then, of course, eats away at him. And, and also his, his bargain with this quasi-socio-political-religious movement, the Zealot Movement, which then becomes, to him, uh, the kind of salvation he wants to see. Uh, d- he also has amazing portrayals of the women. I think Mary and Martha... The, the encounter with Mary and Martha is one of my favorite Dorothy Sayers uh, parts in Man Born to be King is the way she handles Mary and Martha. And uh, by the way, she treats Mary, the sister of Martha, as the, uh, a, a young woman who had been wild. And that's how some scholars even try to understand the fact that it's in the house of Bethany when Mary, when Mar- Mary takes her hair down to anoint Jesus, and Jesus accepts that anointing. And th- that's not a woman on the streets. That is Mary, who's the sister of Martha. Because Martha, according to Dorothy Sayers' interpretation now, Mary had been a wild young girl who'd now come back to the family. And the family, it was uh, this prosperous family, and they accepted her back, and they had made her uh, whole. But then there is this wonderful scene that is in Luke uh, in Luke uh, Luke's Gospel, where um, Martha and Mary are in the house and Jesus is teaching, and Mary wants to uh, uh, wants to be there and uh, and and uh, be in, and listen to listen to uh, Christ, uh, and so we have uh, we have Martha now. Martha says. That careless girl has broken, now, this is not uh, Mary. This is one of the, uh, the workers in the kitchen. That careless girl has broken the big pitcher, the yellow pitcher. And something has gone wrong with the, the, uh, the uh, scullery door, and it won't shut properly. And how much longer are Peter and James going to be? And the meat will be dried to a cinder. And Mary, do you wish, uh, I do wish you'd take a little more interest in housekeeping. There's too, uh, there's too much work for one pair of hands. And now that Abigail is of no use at all, it's all very well for men to sit and be talking all day, but a woman's place is in the kitchen. Rabbi, now she comes to Jesus. Remember that great scene in Luke? And she comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, um, why do you encourage Mary to leave everything to me? Don't you think it's a little unfair? Do tell her to come and help me. Uh, I I use it when I teach on prayer. I say that's an example of prayer. It's a prayer. It's except that you're telling Christ what to do in the prayer. But He says, "Make her come and help me." And then I love Dorothy Sayers' answer of what Jesus actually in in the uh, in the actual biblical text. The text is just this: "Martha, Martha, you are troubled over many things." That's the text. And in the, in the tradition of the Jews and the use of language, when you say someone's name twice, that's a sign of affection. So now Dorothy Sayers is going to give you that in a beautiful way here with the speech she gives Jesus. Jesus says, Martha, dear, see, you are the kindest soul alive. Martha, Martha, you're the kindest soul alive. You work so hard and you take so much trouble about everything except perhaps now this greatest thing of all, the thing that Mary cares about. She chose the better part and you must not take it away from her. And so that's how Dorothy Sayers handles uh, Martha and Mary. And then, of course, also she preserves. I love the fact that you need John's gospel with Martha. She preserves the fact that Martha is the one that meets Jesus at the death of Lazarus scene, and she's the one that meets him, and she points that out in the in man born to be king. And it's Martha, not Mary, Mary's in weeping with the other people at the death of Lazarus, but it's Martha who says, Lord, we did send for you, you know, <laughs> and you waited two more days and didn't come. We did send for you, and now, Lord, I, I know whatever you want to do is, is right, I trust you. And Jesus says, do you believe in the resurrection? She says, yes, you know, I believe in the resurrection. And then it's Martha who hears this wonderful I am. You know, all the I am's and, 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 and Dorothy Sayers preserves that. It's Martha who hears the great I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe that, Martha? And she says, yes, I believe. Martha is the great woman of faith. Not just busy in the kitchen. Isn't that great? So Dorothy Sayers preserves Martha, and I am grateful for that. But also I'm grateful for the way uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers has the rebuke of Martha. Now, one other controversial scene, I hope I have time for one more, is Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary Magdalene is uh, at the cross. And uh, she is a main player at the cross, according to uh, Dorothy Sayers. And she does, uh, Dorothy Sayers does something really quite remarkable uh, with regard to Mary Magdalene uh, uh, at the time of the cross, when the Jesus being crucified, actually being crucified. John, we know from the New Testament text that John is there with his mother, uh, with his mother Salome, and his aunt Mary, the mother of our Lord, and. Those and maybe and Mary Magdalene, those women plus John, the young. You say, well, why is John there? He's the youngest of the disciples. He probably was able to be there without arousing suspicion because he's, he's the youngest, maybe only 16 years old. So he's there, but they can't get near the cross because in Roman crucifixion, they didn't allow anybody to stand near the cross. They were to walk by the cross. It was meant to be a show that the, Jer- the Romans were putting on and no one could stay. But yet we know from the New Testament that they were at the foot of the cross. And of course, all the art of the the crucifixion of Christ, the mother of our Lord is there, the great Rembrandt, the mother of, of and, and the women are there and John is there. And so we know that from the text, the w- but yet in Roman crucifixion, it, it's if, if she did all her research, that's not the way it was, uh, uh, the, the, those who were crucified or were on the side of the road, it was always in a public place where the people walked by and wagged their heads and made fun of them and saw them, but nobody stopped. And so now's uh, the, the thing that Mary, that Dorothy Sayers, the novelist, tries to figure out how is it that uh, Mary Magdalene and, and the mother of Jesus uh, are able to get to the cross and, uh, and have time there? and so she creates a uh, she creates a scene and i think it's i think it's really quite remarkable what she does in in the scene that she creates uh, the centurion says pass along there pass along please now my lads stand back you can't come any closer and then john says pray good centurion let us pass we're friends of jesus of nazareth then you better steer clear of trouble take these women away it's no place for them and then uh, the virgin mary Sir, I am his mother. I implore you to let me, let me go to him. Centurion, sorry, madam, can't be done. Corvus, keep these wimp people moving. Now you go home quietly. And then Mary Magdalene says, Marcellus, do you know me? Centurion, no, my girl, never saw you in my life. And then Mary Magdalene says, uh, Has grief so changed my face? Quick, Marys, pull off my veil, unpin my hair. Look again, Marcellus. Is there another woman in Jerusalem with red hair like mine? Remember that Mary Magdalene had been a woman of the streets and had been a singer and dancer. We know that from the Bible. Now, notice Dorothy Sayers, the novelist, is going to put that into the, this holy scene. Uh, the centurion says, Mary of Magdala, Soldiers, Mary, Mary of Magdala. Where have you been all this time, Magla? Mary Magdalene. By the feet that danced for you, by the voice that sang for you, for the, by the beauty that delighted you, Marcellus, let me pass. Let us come. Marcellus says, beauty for living men. What is this dying uh, man uh, to you? He is my life, and you have killed him. Think what you like, laugh at you will, but for old sake's sake, let Mary Magdalene pass, she says. S- uh, the first soldier, oh, no, don't let, dope, my lass." The second soldier, not without paying. Third soldier, sing us one of your old songs, Mary. And then the soldiers, that's right, give us a tune. Sing, girl, sing, make us laugh, make us cry. Mary Magdalene, Mary distracted. My songs, I've forgotten them all. Wait, wait, I'll try. What will you have me, lads, roses of Sharon, Dinah, dear, or oh, home again? Soldiers applauding, home again, home again. And then Mary sings, and Dorothy Sarris has this song in The Man Born to be King. Soldier, soldier, why will you roam? The flowers grow white in the hills of home. Where the little, where the little brown brook grows down to the sea, come again, come again, love to me. And then hear the soldiers join in the chorus. Pick up your feet for the long last leagues. No more pack drill, no more fatigues. No more roll call, no more bugle call. Come halt and stand at ease. Sunlight, starlight, twilight and dawn. The door unbarred and the latch undrawn. Waiting for the lad that I... And then she says, I can't go on. And then the centurion says, all right, Mary... Let her pass, lads, and the mother and the friend. That'll do. No more. And that they get to then have that scene at the cross, according to Dorothy Sayers. Well, uh, do I have time for one more reading? It's your show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's your birthday. And, oh, it's my birthday, but it's your show. <laughs> uh, one other show. One other uh, uh, it's, uh, Dorothy Sayers touch. ...has to do with Pontius Pilate. Uh, during the trial... Uh, uh, ...during the trial... Uh, uh, ...right in the, in the middle of the trial... ...a slave... ...comes up to... Uh, it ...comes up to Pontius Pilate... ...while he's hearing... ...hearing the case... ...against Jesus. And the, the slave comes up and says... ...and says to him... ...your pardon, excellency... ...a note from her excellency... The Lady Claudia, that's the name, the traditional name of the wife of Pontius Pilate. Remember in the the book of Matthew, the wife of Pontius Pilate sent a message to him. Now, Dorothy Sayers is going to reflect on that message. Sent a message to him where she said, have nothing to do with this man. But so anyway, uh, your pardon, excellency, a note from her excellency, the Lady Claudia. She asked, it should be delivered immediately wherever you were. And Pilate says, hey, "Well, here, put put it right here. I put it here. I'll, I'll get to it later." And then he goes on for the trial, and the trial is now uh, over. And he is he is declared that the Ibisod chrism, thou shalt go to the cross. He's condemned Christ to the cross. And then, uh, then finally, his wife comes up to him and sees him. She comes up to where he is, and. Uh, 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 and then, and then he says to her. Uh, Pilate says to her, Claudia, Claudia, tell me, what was this dream of yours? Uh, and because she said, I have, have nothing to do with this man. I had a bad dream about him. Have nothing to do with this man. I had a bad dream about him. And so now, finally, she comes, and Pilate says to her, Claudia, Claudia, tell me, what was this dream of yours? I was on a ship at sea, voyaging among the islands of the Aegean. At first the weather seemed calm and sunny, but presently the sky darkened and the sea began to toss in the wind. And I said to the captain, what do they cry? And he answered, great pan is dead. You know, in Greek mythology, pan would be the, the, the main name for God. Great pan is dead. And I asked, how can God die? And he answered, don't you remember? They crucified him. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Then all the people in the ship turned their faces to me, and they said, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried under Pontius Pilate. Pilate. Suffered, suffered under Pontius Pilate, under Pontius Pilate. In all tongues and all voices, even the little children with their mothers. That's your name, husband. Your name continually. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And, of course, as you know, that's in the Creed. And so Dorothy Serres decides to tell you how she thought, as a novelist, it might have gotten to the creek.
1: Well, we've got a lot to discuss, and we're going to take a quick break and be back with more of Earl Palmer discussing The Man Born to be King. <laughs> well, the room is buzz with conversation. And uh, we're having a most interesting conversation tonight, The Man Born to be King, uh, written by Dorothy Sayers for the uh, BBC during World War II. Uh, Around the same time, C.S. Lewis had been contracted to do his talks in which uh, he explained Christianity to a so-called Christian nation, Um, something that we could use at times in our own culture. I'm interested, just in going back to to uh, what I just mentioned about Lewis doing the BBC talks that became *Mere Christianity*, and Dorothy Sayers, of course, two big literary figures. How well did they know each other? In in Tolkien, you know, we know about the Inklings meet, met Burden, baby, had conversations. Uh, was she ever a part of that group officially, or did she know them well? Did they know her?
0: The uh, Inklings was a uh, it was a male only uh, group. And it stayed that way because they and that maybe they regret that. Maybe they did regret it a little bit toward the end. But their tradition at the Inklings was no one could join the Inklings unless everybody in the Inklings agreed that that person could join. And so there was uh, there's never uh, never an attempt to get Dorothy Sayers in. But Dorothy didn't live right there. It would have been harder for her to come because she was. But
1: did they, other than correspondence, did they actually meet often and have conversations? Lewis
0: had the greatest regard for Dorothy Sayers, and he wrote the the most beautiful tribute to her at her death in 1957. And she was older than he was. She was born in 1893. He was 1898. But you know, uh, he absolutely he absolutely. did you know that he read "Man Born to Be King" every year at Lent as his Lenten devotional? Hmm. You know who else loved "Man Born to Be King"? Carl Barth. Carl Bart absolutely f- loved this book.
1: These are things uh, inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, That's and uh,
0: amazing. but at any rate, uh, and there's a wonderful letter that Dorothy Sayers wrote in spoof to Lewis during the midst of her program because see, Lewis was doing his radio broadcast. Uh, long after she had stopped her show. but toward, And she kept getting a lot of mail, and she wrote, uh, 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 kind of using the screw tape, she says, uh, God is at his, uh, he's unscrupulous now again, and uh, I've got all these people writing to me who don't believe in miracles. You have got to write something on miracles for me. And then Lewis did write Miracles. Wow. And that was 1947 is when he wrote Miracles. And Dorothy Sayers, he gives credit to Dorothy Sayers for having uh, told him, you've got to write something on Miracles.
1: Now, Tolkien wasn't altogether pleased that C.S. Lewis was writing books that had theological uh, content because he felt Lewis was a, a literary guy. And he was a little nervous about a literary person doing theology. Is that true? Uh, no, I think that's overplayed. Uh,
0: but a lot of people have overplayed that, that feel that, uh, uh, no, uh, Tolkien respected, they had a different <laughs> gift. Tolkien is going to play his, uh, his gift in a different way. Yeah, think about it for a minute. Tolkien started writing uh, what became Lord of the Rings at the end of World War I, <laughs> while he's still in a field hospital, is when he starts to write it because his friends said, uh, uh, John Ronald, you must finish our story. And he felt that he was commissioned by his four friends, three of whom died in the Battle of Somme. Uh, uh, He felt he was commissioned by these friends to finish our story. And so he started working on it, and he worked on it all the way through the 30s. He took one little break to write The uh, Hobbit and some other technical works he wrote. uh, And... uh, he did not publish the Lord of the Rings until 1957, 55, 56, 57 in, in, in three volumes because Lewis forced him to do it. Because, And that's another story. I've told that story yep. before. But so that, that's all that he was working on. And in, in a way, everybody has their own gift. Lewis, if if. if uh, everybody's gift has a dark side. The yeah. dark side, if <laughs> it's a dark side, but the shadow side for Porto, for Tolkien is that he was a perfectionist, and it was never good enough, never good enough, and so he didn't want to release it to the public. And then when he did release it to the publisher, the publisher wanted to <laughs> cut it down, yeah. and he said, "No, you cannot cut it down. It's impossibly and insufferably long." He used all kinds of language with the publisher about it It is a recklessly long, brutally. He used all these bad words about my manuscript, but you cannot cut one word out. (laughs) And so they said, well, we don't know what to do with it because they wanted to shorten it like the Hobbit was a nice short little piece. and They wanted a nice short piece. First, they they said, can you just put all three of them into one volume? And (laughs) Tolkien said, no. And Lewis said, stick with it. Stick with what you what your dream is, your dream is this has got to be written as you wrote it. And uh, and so finally the publisher, I, I've told the story before, but the publisher that had published The Hobbit finally said, OK, 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 we'll publish it in three volumes and they'll probably sit on the shelves forever, but we'll do it. Uh, but instead of giving you an advance. <laughs> Which is what you're supposed to do with, with authors, you know. Like Hillary got it. Uh, no, the, the the Obamas got a million dollar advance on the book they're writing, and that's what the famous writers are supposed to get. And he, after all, he was a well known writer from writing *Hobbit*, though it was only modestly successful. But his publisher said, "Yeah, we uh, we rather we'll publish it, but we'll give you a percent of profits instead of a advance." And
1: would have liked that deal.
0: <laughs> and that meant that the estate got millions of dollars yeah. from those books.
1: Great. Millions great. and millions. That's, that's
0: great. But not for Tolkien because he died by then. But his estate got that.
1: Last night, just happenstance, uh, 60 Minutes had a, a feature on an upcoming Broadway a- adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. And they have a buzzy creative team, including Aaron Sorkin, who did West Wing. and It's going to star Jeff Daniels. But interestingly, They were sued by the estate of Harper Lee because they felt that the estate uh, saw deviations from the source material, particularly in depicting the attitudes of Atticus Finch, one of the story's main characters. Now, they did later settle. But there is an interesting kind of comparison to what happened with the man born to be king. Because you told some of the wonderful insights that she brought but there were also some areas where people you know may have had a problem like she had nicodemus saying that he could not accept that jesus was you know ultimately the i am he could accept this and that's not anywhere in the new testament text so she she did do some things with some characters that that were jarring and thought provoking but i wonder if if there was a an interest group for the estate of the Bible if they would have sued. no. What's the issue of art and and taking freedoms with developing characters and so forth?
0: And the thing I I would give Dorothy Sayers a high mark here because what she does is she will take a character like Nicodemus is a perfect example. The rich young ruler is a perfect example. And if you're gonna be faithful to the New Testament, what you have to say about Nicodemus is he had that great encounter in John three he, he does appear saying, do we actually condemn an innocent man without a hearing on the Sanhedrin? But you have to say this about Nicodemus. The story's not over. Yeah. But don't say, ah, and he became a wonderful uh Dispensational yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian and fulfilled, uh, got involved in, it, and got into our movement and <laughs> got into our and became and believe what we believe. Yeah, you can't say that. But but you see, can actually, say that the story's not over because Nicodemus is left. In fact, I have made a big thing about that in biblical characters. Did you realize that the great number of biblical characters are unfinished stories, including Saint Paul? Yeah. It's an unfinished story,
1: and. Uh, but isn't there a difference between saying it's an unfinished story and putting words in the mouth of someone that we don't have any evidence yeah, consistent? Okay. because here's exactly what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus, of course, is in John chapter 3, and I agree with you completely. We can't build a whole theology around his born-again comment. Uh, but Nicodemus, near when he's with the Sanhedrin, and they're discussing what to do about this Jesus, he says he's in the high priest's house. He said, I'm prepared to believe Jesus is a great teacher, prophet, perhaps even Messiah. But I can do so no longer. He has claimed he is the Son of God. Now, to me, that's a little bit of literary license that crosses the line. And, and I suppose that has to come with the territory because there's so many great insights. Like in the rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus tells the rich young ruler that he's got to give away everything. And he says, is there no other way? And Jesus says not for you. And that's, that's how she handles it in this script, which is just so beautiful. In other words, this is what I'm asking of you. And so great insight. It, I'm, I'm putting this in the broader context of how people of faith can deal with um, uh, literary adaptations that at t- I would say often the, the immediate reaction is like the Scottish Presbyterian Church. This is blasphemy. Were any of you around when uh, The Last Temptation of Christ came out? Okay, it's a l- piece of literary work by a Greek author. But people, Christians wanted to impose orthodoxy on this this literary piece. We shouldn't do that. But what about a person of faith who's trying to uh, amplify and takes that kind of freedom?
0: Yeah. Well, if if in fact uh, Nicodemus is struggling uh, with the fact that Jesus uh, said he is the Son of God, actually Jesus doesn't really say that. Right. It's said about him. Right. Uh, he calls himself Son of Man. Right. And so, it but it is said about him, and he doesn't deny He accepts it. And in in his prayer, My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, he is not. He's calling God his Father, and so uh, he and he prays to God his Father. Paul's father, and uh, but if you have a character, and and for some reason Dorothy wants to preserve the fact that Nicodemus is still struggling with this great central truth, and that's a good thing to struggle about. If you're going to struggle about that, Mm -hmm. and then have the surprise of making the discovery that uh, uh, this is how God makes Himself known. He made Himself known this way, and uh, and then yes. Uh, he, then he gets resolved. That's why I say, I like to treat Nicodemus as the story's not over. And he has yet to make these
1: amazing yeah. discoveries. Well, if you read all the notes, you know she has notes at the beginning of each section of the play. She describes what she sees as the issue, and she gives a definition of what each character is doing. So you get a sense of context yeah. that you, you wouldn't get if you just heard the play. Uh, And and so the notes are kind of important. We'll get back in just a moment with uh, continuation of our conversation about the man born to be king, uh, this amazing piece of work by Dorothy Uh, Sayers. By the way,
0: the one thing that is so clear about Dorothy Sayers is that uh, she uh, when she became a believer, she became very, very committed to what we call creedal Christianity to historic orthodoxy. Very, very committed to it. And that's why the very first book on the list is, is Creed or Chaos. And, and that wonderful sense of creed. She loves the creed. She loves the Apostles' Creed, loves the Nicene Creed. Now, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people say, you know, I don't like the creed. It just sounds so wordy and all. But though every word works. And she loved that. And that's why I put that quote. Don't you love the quote at the beginning? That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human fertility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. And that is from her quote on the greatest drama ever told. That's why this is the greatest drama ever told. It completely takes us by surprise. And, and remember, she puts it in with, uh, uh, with Malachor in The Wise Men. He won by defeat. He won the great battle at the cross, which is where he's being defeated.
1: Uh, well, we're gonna take a quick break you're listening to The Killing's Muse uh, at Earl Palmer Ministries. I'm sure our wit and wisdom pummeled the audience into complete silence, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, which means I get to answer another, ask another question, and actually, I have a guest that drove me down my wheel man, as I call him, and I told him today, it, it's, it would be an interesting, it, it, it's a difficult subject, you haven't read the whole yeah. text, and it's a difficult text to get a hold of because it's pretty much out of print. So, although it's been republished by Whip and Stock, I noticed, uh, Earl's got that e- edition. Let's, let's finish up with this. In the beginning of the, the book, in the introduction, Dorothy Sayers uh, said that this, that she felt that the inherent drama of the gospel story has become muffled by familiarity and a general failure to think of its characters as real people. She was determined to give the plays dramatic immediacy, featuring realistic, identifiable characters with human emotions, motivations, and speech patterns. That's what she set out to do, and of course we've talked about uh, C.S. Lewis's experiment in criticism, and so we know what Lewis felt about the way you approach a piece of art uh, is by what it was trying to set, what it set out to accomplish. So. How would you say Dorothy Sayers succeeded or didn't succeed in, in, in accomplishing what she had set out to do?
0: Uh, well, f- first of all, one, uh, interesting, uh, one interesting marker is, uh, and I, I don't have that book with me tonight, but uh, Justin Phillips, who wrote a book about the BBC and both Dorothy Sayers and Lewis, but since I just was going to focus on the play itself, I didn't bring that book here. But he tells a story uh, in there of when they were, when the cast was uh, performing the uh, crucifixion scene, uh, that the young man that played the role of Jesus uh, became, uh, in fact, it's Val Gilded who told this story that when the young man that was playing the, the role of Jesus broke down and cried uh, and he's an actor and knew, knew the lines and knew what he was doing and then the, it ended and he just walked out and with the tears were streaming down his face because it had so gripped him and that was uh, that was actually narrated by Val Gilgit, uh, who uh, also became so touched by the reality, there was a kind of reality level that, uh, I, for me, the uh, the treatment of Mary Magdalene is just terribly uh, touching to see uh, this novelist creating a, a kind of plausible scene. How was she able to get the soldiers to let them stop so that the mother of Jesus could be there and, and John, and Salome, and they could be there. How could she? Or how could, young John, notice, in the opening of the scene, John tries to do it, and they just brush him aside. They say, uh, young boy, go away and, and, and lead those ladies away. And uh, and then it's Mary Magdalene uh, who does this song. And I mean, to me, that was just so moving, that, that that was her gift, that's what she had, that was the access she had. And, uh, and I, I, I was very touched by that.
1: Another example of a character that's developed in, in the play that the connections are not made in scripture is uh, that you have the scene at the beginning where Herod is commanding a soldier to carry out his order that all children under the age of two be killed in Bethlehem. Yeah. And the soldier, Proctolus, says, I won't do it, he says to Herod. I am a Roman, and Romans do not kill children. And his friends, the, and, and, uh, and Herod said something like, you know, you're a fool, but a good-hearted fool, and, and doesn't punish this soldier. But what Dorothy Sayers does then with that same character is, remember, there is a centurion that comes to Jesus and his son is sick and needs to be healed. And Jesus says, well, I'll come. And he said, oh no, you don't need to come. I'm a man under authority too. I know how busy you are. How, you know, If you will just say the word. And Jesus said, never have I seen such faith. You know, and, and, and in Dorothy Sayers telling the story, that's the same guy that refused to kill the children in Bethlehem. And then as the final note, at the crucifixion, uh, that soldier was there. He was there at the crucifixion. And he's the one who said, uh, people believe that uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So you see, artistic license sometimes creates some possibilities of looking at things differently.
0: But But that's also biblical because it is a centurion who yeah, says there is surely this man is a son of god right. now he doesn't mean the way we understand son of god right. but and so she weaves that yeah. and makes that fictional character all the way from the massacre of the innocents uh, that was one of the readings that i almost did but just uh, you i'm glad you did it because she weaves it through and then puts it at the end that he is the one he gets that last word That Jesus has now died, and this centurion says, uh, I I believe that he must be the Son of God.
1: I guess one of the lessons for me is, uh, let's let's go back to my youth many, many centuries ago in the 60s. And Jesus Christ Superstar had just come out, and I was the minister to students uh, at that time at a, a covenant church in Redwood City. And I was always looking for ways to get students to engage scripture. So I, I, and the music had just come out. And there's a song where Mary sings, I don't know how to love him. He's a man, he's just a man. So I had those lyrics printed on a sheet of paper. And then I had the biblical account on a, on a column next to it. And we had 150 high school students. Get, I broke them all into groups of five. After we'd played this song... And I said, what do you say to the fact that she says, he's a man. He's just a man. And you had high school students getting interested in doing theology because they were aware that there was a different perspective than they learned in Sunday school. And they suddenly felt like, I have something to defend. I have something that I believe that I have. So artistic uh, renderings of our faith, we tend to, often people tend in, particularly in conservative Christian circles, to react negatively to the arts when they take on the subject. And I guess I say, let's get in the conversation. You know, in this case, it was a person who is a believer in Jesus. But even in cases where the person isn't a believer in Jesus, you know, we ought to be ready to defend what we think and what we believe. And we ought to be able to receive art as the work of that artist and they're telling us what they believe. And by doing so, hopefully they're inviting us into a conversation to say what we believe and how life has, has been for us. So uh, really interesting interesting conversation tonight, Earl. And I, I love that you draw us into, uh, into things that we may not have thought of. And certainly I had never read this before I had heard of it. So uh, thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this edition of The Killings Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time.